Good morning. You know, Jeremy introduced himself twice, so I wanted to say good morning twice, because I like Jeremy. We're starting a series. We're going to do the same book all the way up to Advent. And if you got my email last week, you saw a little picture um, in the email, and it had a little kitten, and the kitten was looking into a mirror, and the kitten saw a tiger. That, in essence, is what we're trying to do with the book of James. That little caption, it said, taking an honest look at our faith. Here's the goal. I think at times, all of us, what we see in the mirror is not accurate. Sometimes we see something that is far more than we actually are, and sometimes we see something that is far less than we actually are. And both of them are hard. What we want to do with James, because he is, I mean, James will hold up a mirror every single week and ask us to look into it, because this book is about the genuineness of faith. And so what we're, what we're calling the series is Reality Check. And the idea is every week for us to do a reality check. Where am I and where is Scripture calling me to be? And here's the thing that I am personally trying to do and inviting you to be a part of. I have been to a lot of Bible studies. I've been to a lot of church. I've heard a lot of sermons. And I've done a lot of this. That was really good. But I don't know if I'm that much different because of it. And here's what I want to do through James personally. I want to be different. I really do want to look in the mirror and say, am I living that way? And if I'm not, how do I change? How do I become more like Christ? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we open your book and we open this particular book of James, Lord, would you speak to us? Encourage and equip us to live kingdom first every day of every week of every year for your honor and glory. Amen. This Friday, I was having lunch with LaVon. We were talking through this new role of director of children's ministry. Um, It was a very good, very exciting lunch um, to get to talk to the next person who's stepping in and to to help lead our, our kids great lunch. Um, There was a moment in the lunch um, that wasn't as great, and it was when we ordered. And I ordered a salad, and then because I understand pairing well, I ordered a Sauvignon Blanc, nice white wine to go with my salad. And the server gave me a little bit of a look because we're basically at a brewery and I'm ordering a glass of white wine. So then LaVon orders a salad, and then she orders a stout beer. And he just smiled at her. And then he looked at me, and I could tell by his look he had lost respect for me. Which was okay, because I had lost respect for me after that happened. So here we are having this wonderful meal where I am sipping on my little sissy white wine, and she is drinking her put hair on your chest dark beer. 
and I get a phone call. Have you had that phone call that just changes everything in that moment? My wife was at the OB, and the phone call was, the baby is breech, and eight pounds already. And it just shook my world and hers. What do we do? Um, what is the next step? How do we handle this? What's, and of course, my wife with a medical background is already running through everything. I spent the next day and I'm researching, trying to understand. Not really trying to make a decision for the doctor, just trying to understand you know, C-sections, inversions, and like all the stuff that we have to decide we're going to do. And guess what? It's happening on Tuesday. This is our trial right now. And it's the one thing that's on my mind. Um, I was about three-quarters of the way done with my sermon at that point. Guess where I am right now? I'm three-quarters of the way done with my sermon. Because that trial is there. How do you handle trials? That's where James starts. I mean, it's a punch to the gut. It's just right off the bat, it's how do you handle trials? How do you deal with them? And, and one of the ways that Aaron and I deal with stuff, and you guys might relate to this, is sometimes when things are super hard, we try to add a little humor. I mean, to laugh a little bit. And Heather Goodman, who preached her about six weeks ago, Heather sent Aaron a text yesterday, and the, the title was, playlist for Kelton. Knowing we're going in on Tuesday, it's the playlist we're supposed to be playing while they are trying to get this baby to flip over. Um, on the playlist, she had Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. We gotta get out of this place by the animals. It's the end of the world as we know it by R.E.M., and then I started looking, I'm like, we need more songs, like, we got to get this thing. And I found some songs, I Need You to Turn by Elton John, um, Turn the Other Way by Sevenfold, U-Turn by Usher. Do you know there are like 85 songs with the word turn in it? But for us, that was a, how do we deal with this? And one of the ways is, can we laugh a little? Because there's just, we can't, we can't change this. But James is going to give us a way of dealing with our trials. Humor can be part of it, but James is going to be very upfront. This is what you do. If you would, open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right, here's what James says for us to do. Consider it all joy when you go through various trials. All right, Aaron and I are going, what do we do? We're having some humor in here, and James is saying, that's not bad. 
But I'm going to give you what I want you to do. I want you to consider your trial all joy. Now, I'm going to tell you, I tried to get out of this. I tried to find loopholes. In fact, I went into a couple other sections of Scripture. I'm assuming everybody has heard something like this before. This isn't brand new to you. Well, Paul talks about it in Romans 5, but Paul says he rejoices. And I thought, well, that's good for you, Paul, but that's not telling me I absolutely have to. Peter says, insofar as your sufferings are sharing in Christ's sufferings, you're to rejoice. I'm not really sure all of my sufferings are sharing in Christ's sufferings, so there's another back door for me. James leaves none. Various trials. I don't care what you're going through, consider it all joy. So what does he mean by that? And I'm going to break it down. All right, the word count, when he says count it all joy in Greek, it is an intellectual activity of interpretation. Hey, we do this all the time. You come into a particular environment, you come into something going on, you interpret it. Right? And sometimes, have you ever struggled with patience? Of course not. One of the things we do with patience is we begin to get impatient, and then we try to reinterpret so that we can have patience. Okay? We interpret things all the time. This is James saying, I want you to interpret, that's the first part, and I want you to interpret it with all joy. All right, I'm going to give you some freedom here. All right, this is really important. The word all, the word all is intensive. It's not exclusive. All right, here's the difference. He is not saying, consider your trial nothing but joy. As if you can't be angry, or as if you can't be hurt, or as if you can't be sad. Those are real reactions. Hey, this is not James saying, be a robot, and just go be happy all the time. Rather, it's an intensifier, really joyful. Like, you can be sad, you can be depressed, you can be angry, you can be hurt, but I also want you to interpret this in such a way that you can be really joyful. And joy, by the way, that also isn't a way out. It means, ready for this? Joy. There's no weird Greek meaning. It means joy. It is what happens after they see the resurrected Christ and they go back to tell others. It's joy. It's what happens when Peter comes to the door and acts and they think he's gone and the lady hears his voice and they're like, oh, it's Peter! And there's joy. It is joy. So interpret whatever circumstance this is with an, a massive amount of joy, even if you're sad, even if you're hurt, even if you're angry. And the word trial, it can mean suffering, but it's most likely meaning here is something like this. Testing, um, it's, like, it's like stepping onto something, can this hold my weight or not? I'm, being te- I'm testing it, I'm trying to figure out, I, I want to see how hot this can get. Right? When you go through testings, I want you to interpret them in such a way, and there are various kinds, I don't care what it is, that you can have great joy. <sighs> Let me tell you a couple of their trials, okay? I'll give you an idea so you can relate it to yourself. All right, number one, he greets people in the dispersion. Right, that word is a technical term, the diaspora. And what it means is the Jews who are living outside of the Holy Land. They are away from home. They're away from the Holy City. They're away from Jerusalem. 
right? They don't have a home. You ever felt lonely, disconnected, like you don't belong, like you want something that you can't have? Those were some of their trials. Another one of their trials, throughout the book, he refers a number of times to the poor, and it's within the congregation. A lot of the folks in this congregation are poor. They don't have hardly day-to-day the ability to live and eat. They have no hope of rising up. In the first century, if you are poor, you're going to die poor. You don't have the same kind of things you can do in our society. So they lacked hope. They lacked basic necessities. And yet he still says, I want you to interpret that situation. You're lacking your hopelessness with all joy. And finally, they are fighting. And partway through this book, he's basically going to yell at them because they're, they're fighting among each other. There are relationships that are hurting. There's distrust. There's discord. All of those things are part of their trials. Here's my question for you. What's your trial right now? I told Aaron, I was trying to think through the trials I've been going through. The problem is the most significant one is somewhat clouding everything else right now. Not that I can't think of the big ones that have happened, but like right now, that's the big. What's yours? What are you going through right now that is your testing? That your reality check this morning is God saying, I want you to interpret that with all joy. Now, I think I'm going to be upfront with you. Maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't. I think that is stupid. Anybody else? I mean, I told you what we're going through. The risks to my wife, to my baby, I'm supposed, how am I supposed to find joy in that? This is dumb. There's a reason I don't do that. But maybe the reason is I don't understand the why. Maybe the what looks really ridiculous when you don't include the why. Let me demonstrate. A man named Abraham Wald was born in 1902. He is the grandson of a rabbi. Um, he is Jewish. Um, he was exceptional in mathematics, even from a young age, and would eventually go to study at the University in Vienna. And before the start of World War II, he would be in America as a professor at Columbia. But the main thing that he is known for, and, and, and what um, what he did while he was there is he was part of the SRG, the Statistical Research Group. This group, this program, was assembled to aid the war effort, not through explosives, but through equations. They pulled a powerhouse of people together to do all of the math that would determine everything from what they loaded into machine guns for fighter planes to how they would do curves in the air. Like everything mathematical. Here are some of the names. Frederick Mosteller, who would later found the statistic program at Harvard. Leonard Savage, the pioneer of decision theory. Norbert Wiener, the creator of cybernetics. Milton Friedman, the only name I actually knew on this list who would later get the Nobel Prize for economics, and by the way, was considered the fourth smartest man in this group, to give you an idea. 
And many times, Albert Wald was considered the smartest. And here's what happened. The um, military came to this group, and they brought some data, and they wanted to figure out how to make their planes safer. Here was the problem. You can put armor on a plane, but you put too much armor on a plane, and it gets too heavy, and it uses too much fuel, and it can't maneuver. But if you don't put enough armor on a plane, it's just going to get shot down. So what's the balance? And so they brought to him and to this group all of the statistics from the planes that had come back, and they're looking at how the bullets were sprayed across the plane. And what they noticed is there were significant areas where there were a lot more bullets, and most of those were near the fuel. And there were areas where there were almost no bullets or much less around engine areas. And so the officers saw an opportunity for efficiency, figuring you can get the same protection on a plane if you just protect the areas where all the bullets go. You don't have to do the whole thing, right? That way it can stay light. Well, they were right, but they were wrong. Wald said, don't put the armor where the bullet holes are at. Put the armor where the bullet holes aren't. Now, does that sound stupid? I mean, as stupid as James saying, go be happy when you're in the middle of your struggles. But here's what happened. Wald's insight was to simply ask this. Where are the missing holes? The ones that would have been all over the engine casing if the damage had been spread equally over the plane. Where are those at? Wald knew. The missing bullet holes were on the missing planes. See, what he recognized is that it's not as if they were randomly firing. It's all the planes were getting hit, but the ones that were actually getting hit in the engines, they were crashing because the engine was more important than the fuel. The planes could fly for a while if you hit them there, but if you hit them in the engine right, they're going down. Once they understood the why, the what began to make sense. What is James's what? That's my question. Look back at the text. Verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word steadfast means to bear up under. It means to be able to stand even when you're being crushed. It produces steadfastness. And here's, here's the image that I had in my head. Now, every once in a while, I play guitar for the worship team, maybe once a year. But that's part of the problem. I play once a year. Right, if you play guitar, what you know is if you play once a year, you pick up the guitar and you start playing, and within about five minutes... Your fingers are killing you. I mean, they hurt. And yet, we're, I'm supposed to get up there and play for an entire service? I have to start like three weeks ahead of time, just playing a little at a time, because what am I doing? I'm building up calluses. I'm letting my fingers suffer so they can bear up more pressure. And James says, it's our testing that produces spiritual calluses. It makes us strong. All right, I kind of got that part, actually. Um, in fact, I've heard that a lot. Um, it wasn't really new information. It's good to know. It's the next part. It's the next part that I feel like I've left out of my equation. 
And it's why for so long I haven't really understood what James was getting at. Verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. If I was playing the guitar and I played for five minutes and it hurt, and I went, oh, that hurts, and so I played for six minutes, but then I let the guitar down and I went back and started playing on the worship team. Would that do me any good? No. It takes a whole lot longer than that to actually develop the endurance to be able to play. Here, James says, if you want the effect I'm about to talk about, the real why, you have to let endurance run its course. Brothers and sisters, I am really, really good at complaining about my trials, about looking for the quickest, easiest way out, about getting into kind of uh, self-pity and and depression, and you know what I'm not good at? Being in the midst of my trial and going, God, whatever you are doing here, I'm gonna let this thing run its full effect because I wanna be what you've called me to be. I am not real good at saying I can interpret this and there's joy in this. And so whatever you are doing, God, I'm hanging on. Now, again, I'm not taking away what I said in the beginning. You could still be like, this is horrible, I wish this weren't happening, but there's a side of me, I'm going to let this have its full effect because, ready? Here's what James says will happen. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let me read it to you again. I mean, don't just let it slide over. Just listen to these words. That you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I can't help but wonder if James were here, if he were like sitting in the front row, and I went, uh, James, what do you do with that? And James would go, oh, wait, what? What did I just write? Uh, per- wait, wait, I gotta re- rephrase that a little bit. Could you imagine if going through your trials would make you perfect and complete and lacking in nothing? If that is true, can you see why James would say, interpret various trials as all joy, if that's actually what you got at the end? Can you see that? My problem right now is I think the only being in existence that thinks I am perfect and complete and lacks in nothing is my Labrador retriever. And the thing is, she's right. Because in my life, not enough times within my trials have I recognized I can interpret this with joy. I can let myself go all the way through this thing, looking to God, because at the end, there can be this impact. Let me walk you through this impact real quickly, just so you understand. The word perfect would be well translated as mature. Same idea as Paul when he talks about growing up into Christ so that the winds don't knock you around, it's mature. You mature in your faith. It has to do with wisdom, right? That word, that second word, complete, it has to do with being everything you need to be. It's 
Um, it, it's, it's so that you could live up to the expectations. It's, it's being the fullness of what God wants you to be. And lacking nothing is being equipped fully to be able to serve God how he wants you to. Right? And here's the insight that we need to hear. You cannot get the maturity, the fullness of being who we're supposed to be, and the full equipping to serve God by reading the Bible alone. You can't do it by going to Bible studies alone. You can't do it by coming to church alone. What James says is this comes about because you were under fire, because you were being tested. You were living the faith. You know, it's the difference between reading a book on hiking and going up a mountain. Those two things are not the same. You don't get the same out of it. Same thing is true of faith. James is like, look, God has so much for us. He wants to see you mature. He wants to see you be the fullness of who you're called to be, and he wants to equip you to serve him in all ways. But that only happens through your testing. And so when you see your testing, you can go, oh, this stinks, this is awful. And you can also go, all right, Lord, I'm gonna consider this joy because you are producing in me this other thing. You can mature me. You can make me fully what you want me to be. You can equip me to serve you. And it's not gonna happen just by my quiet times, as important as those are. Back in 2007, April 16th, a student at Virginia Tech opened fire on students and teachers, ultimately taking 32 lives. You might remember it from 2007. And as he walked through Norris Hall toward room 204, people were screaming and scattering everywhere. But the teacher in room 204 came to the door. The doors did not have locks on them. And so as the teacher came to the door, he told the students, get out the window. Hurry, everybody go. And they're opening windows and they're flooding out. And he stuck his body against the door. Livio Labrescu was 76 years old. The gunman would come to that door and put five shots into him through the door, and he would die. But 22 out of his 23 students would not because of his sacrifice. When he came to that moment where he, he made this decision, in, in whatever, to put his body as the barrier to save everybody else. I have thought so many times over the last decade, because of all of the terrible violence we've seen in schools, movie theaters, I have thought to myself more than once, would I have the courage to do the right thing? Because I don't know. I know what I'd want to do, but I wasn't trained in the army. I haven't had any combat experience. I have no idea what I would do. I am not prepared for this. When he got to that moment, the courage he showed was the result of something. It wasn't in a vacuum. Labrescu was a Holocaust survivor. 
He had gone through the Holocaust camps. He had watched other Jews die in front of him. This man experienced trials that prepared him for an act of courage to save others. And there is no doubt in my mind or in many other minds that he was thinking of that because April 16th, 2007 was a special day. The shooter would have had probably no idea. Most of us wouldn't either. That day was Yom Yeshua. In Israel, it's a national memorial day. It's the day of the Holocaust remembrance. And here's what's fascinating. It's a movable date like Easter. On this particular year in 2017, it should have been on April 15th. However, if it's adjacent to the Sabbath, they move it one day. So this particular year, it got moved to April 16th. And on that day, when he is remembering everything he went through, the people that died, what he suffered, what his family suffered, he had the courage to do something that I don't know how many of us would, put his body up against a door and barricade it so that 22 lives could get out a window. If you have not grown in your faith in the way that you want to, the problem may not be that you're not reading enough of the Bible. That may be true, but it's probably not your main problem. It's not mine. The main problem is how are we looking at our testing? How are we looking at the things that are coming into our life that challenge us? How are we looking to God? How are we considering what God does because it's the heat, it's the pressure, it's the challenge where God is molding and changing us and transforming us. It's where our courage is coming from. When I told Erin, I said, I can't really think of most of my other trials right now. I mean, I'm so much on this one. She's like, oh, I will never forget what happened with our daughter. And I'm like, that's when I said, no, it's not the big ones. It's, it's the little ones I can't remember. The big ones I remember. However, that one in particular, I can honestly say, it is the only trial in my life where the entire trial, from the diagnosis through the time where they said to us, the cancer is gone, I was looking to God. And you know what? That built some faith in me in a way that I just, I didn't have before. You know, we have a beautiful family sitting in the back right now. They are building faith. What's going on in your life? Because if you run from your trials, you are missing the joy of God maturing you. You're missing the joy of the outcome. Not the joy of the present moment. Please don't hear me wrong. I do not want to be where we are at right now. I want this baby to flip over and I want him to come out. That's it. But I am trying, by God's grace, to interpret my situation with all of its scariness and unknown and heartache and fear for my wife and my child as something also that is joyful because of what God can do through it when endurance runs its course.
Heavenly Father, this is a hard message for each one of us because we are going through our own trials. Lord, and throughout our lives, we know they're gonna keep coming. As long as we are in this fallen world, they are gonna keep coming. Lord, help us this morning to do a reality check. Help us to seriously look at our trials and at your word and change. Not walk out of here and do the same thing we've always done, but for every one of us, Lord, help us begin to interpret our trials as all joy because of what you can do through them. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.